This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. You know, if I followed the live a long and healthy life to its extreme, you know, would I partake in that rare piece of cake at my son's birthday party? And I would say, I don't want to miss that as part of that life experience. On the other hand, birthday cakes don't need to be consumed every single day. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Now, one of the greatest scourges of modern life is type 2 diabetes. It's a global epidemic. It affects many millions of people, many more are pre-diabetic, on the brink of a condition that cuts so many lives short. Now, I've always understood diabetes to be about insulin resistance. People with type 2 diabetes make insulin in the pancreas, but their cells don't use it as well as they should. That's a simplistic explanation, but it's pretty much my understanding of how it affects us. But is that the full story? Indeed, is that the story? I'm at TEDMED, the health and medical conference in California, where conventional wisdom isn't always the order of the day. I'm joined by Dr. Harith Raja Gopalan, who is the co-founder and CEO of Fractal, a medical technology company based in Lexington, Massachusetts. Welcome to the Lama Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with your definition of type 2 diabetes. I agree with your definition of type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is a metabolic disease that is driven by our modern lifestyles and diets, which leads to insulin resistance and eventually the failure of the pancreas. And when the pancreas's insulin production cannot keep pace with the body's resistance to insulin, meaning even though patients with type 2 diabetes have pancreases that are producing well excess of normal levels of insulin into the bloodstream. The body is not responsive sufficiently to that insulin and blood sugar levels rise. So type 2 diabetes is defined very much by the presence of high blood sugar, which is a symptom of the disease rather than its cause. So the diagnosis often comes when the blood sugar levels rise above a particular level though I think that the disease has actually been going on for quite some time before that, and the pancreas has been able to compensate to keep the blood sugar level low by working extremely hard for a very long time. So tell me, what is Fractal? What is your company doing? Our company has developed a minimally invasive procedural therapy that has developed a catheter and a piece of capital equipment called a console that works the catheter that enables a procedure that can treat a portion of the small intestine that is damaged by our modern diets in order to try to rejuvenate the lining of the intestine to reverse the insulin resistance state that drives metabolic diseases, including type 2. 
So let's just dig a little deeper into that. Explain the connection between, more specifically, between diabetes and the, what is it, the internal structure of the duodenum? Sure. So we know that patients with type 2 diabetes have high blood sugar. We know that they have high blood sugar because their pancreas is failing. We know that their pancreas is failing because of insulin resistance. Where our knowledge has fallen short is really understanding why we become insulin resistant in the first place. And I think for a very long time, we ascribed insulin resistance to a combination of our diets and our genes, which leads to excess weight and insulin resistance. But even within that, I think you can sense there's a bit of a hand-waving rationalization of why people become insulin resistant. And I became obsessed with this question because I was a cardiologist and I had seen that there are certain forms of surgery that were originally intended for weight loss that seemed to reverse diabetes nearly instantaneously after the surgery before any weight loss and without even touching the pancreas. And I was awestruck by this real undeniable clinical observation that a surgery on the intestine can reverse diabetes without even touching the pancreas. And, and, can and do a surgery so- not intended to do that. And, and the, the surgery is not even else. intended to do that. The surgery is intended to, wait, to make people lose weight. It's easy to say that the reason that the diabetes is getting better is because people are losing weight. Except when you talk to the surgeons, you realize that patients' insulin requirements are going away one, two, three days after the surgery, before they've even lost an ounce of weight. I found this to be the most fascinating observation that totally defied any explanation that I had ever come across, and I was determined to try to understand it better. What it led me to realize is that there's a component of insulin resistance that is driven by being overweight, but that doesn't explain the full story. Because if you bypass surgically a portion of the intestine, you can make someone more sensitive to insulin almost immediately. I came across a paper uh, about six or seven years ago that showed that if you undo the bypass, you can make the insulin resistance come back. So a single individual can be either made diabetic or not diabetic just by whether or not food comes into contact with the first part of the intestine. So that's double the evidence. You, you take it away and you put it back and you see the effect. Exactly. So I became convinced that there's something going on in the intestine that we don't really fully appreciate today that's actually driving insulin resistance. And this is a surprise until you realize that our intestine is actually our body's largest endocrine organ meaning hormone-producing organ. And one of the jobs of the intestine that is underappreciated is to help control blood sugar by regulating not only the release of insulin from the pancreas, but also the body's responsiveness to that insulin in order to balance the two so that you can keep blood sugar within a reasonable range throughout the day. And so if you assume now that there's a change or a pathology in the intestine that's altering that balance, that is driving individuals' bodies to be less responsive to insulin, you can now appreciate that that can lead to insulin resistance and cause diabetes. And that became the only rational explanation that I could come up with to justify what was already clearly evident, that these surgeries are 
curing diabetes, and we don't understand why. So we started to try to investigate this problem, and we discovered that there are changes in the lining of the first part of the intestine. And that led me to the realization that diabetes may in fact be fixable. If it's an anatomical problem of the lining of the intestine that's actually driving the disease state, then we can think about it like other anatomical problems elsewhere in the body, and we can address it anatomically. So having identified that, how are you addressing it? Well, we realized that what's happening is that sugar exposure and fat exposure in our modern diets are driving an overgrowth of the lining of the intestine. And the cells in that lining do a number of different things, but one of the things they do is they release hormones to the rest of the body to help signal, like beacons, whether the food is coming or not coming in order to help the pancreas and the rest of the body figure out whether it should be storing sugar or producing sugar to make sure that blood sugar levels stay normal. So if there's an overgrowth of these cells, it seemed natural to us to try to figure out a way to reverse that overgrowth. So we developed a catheter that can be delivered through the mouth by a gastroenterologic endoscopist in order to treat the portion of the lining with energy to kill the excess cells. And we do it in a very safe and precise way, which is where our technology and device development comes into play, in order to rejuvenate that lining. Think of it like your body um, getting a scar, your skin getting a scar, and then healing from that scar. And when it heals, a new skin grows in. So what we do is we induce an injury in the lining of the intestine in a very controlled way that allows it to reheal, but it reheals in a rejuvenated way and does not appear to have the pathology that a lifetime of that modern diet had caused. And that's how we can reset insulin resistance. And while this has direct implications on type 2 diabetes, which is our main clinical emphasis, it has actually very vast and far-reaching implications for human health and disease, and in fact, longevity, far beyond type 2 diabetes alone. And so the procedure itself, it's a simple one? I wouldn't say it's simple. No procedure that's performed on a person should be considered simple because you have to make sure that we preserve patient safety to the best extent that we can. And in fact, it's taken a lot of energy and really bright engineering minds in our, in our company to be able to develop a technology that can be safely and effectively applied reliably. But from the experience of the patient, it's actually very tolerable. Patients have to, after dinner, not eat anything else for the rest of the evening and come to the outpatient endoscopy suite in their hospital or surgical center the next day and go, to the, go through an endoscopic procedure, much like millions of people do every day throughout the world. And a little camera called an endoscope is introduced through the mouth, down into the stomach, and then past the stomach into the duodenum, which is the first part of the small intestine. And with the aid of that endoscope, we deliver a catheter that actually performs the heat energy treatment. When both are in position, the endoscopist utilizes both the catheter and our control console with a touchscreen interface in order to 
deliver a precise amount of energy to the tissue for a very precise length of time in order to cause those cells to die and allow the healing process to begin. And within two to four weeks after that procedure, a new lining has already emerged and begun to repair the damage of insulin resistance that was caused by that overgrowth lining, overgrown lining that we had just removed. So as opposed to, for example, dietary changes that some people can use successfully to bring their diabetes under control, this is a, a very quick solution. And I don't want to minimize the value or the importance of a dietary solution, because, but I think it's also fair to say that if there is a if you now recognize that there's an anatomical change in your intestinal lining that is driving the disease state, then an intervention that can remove that disease when coupled with a good diet is going to offer a very nice and very immediate metabolic reset. And it's going to help the dietary intervention work better because you've taken away the driver of insulin resistance and hunger that had been there that was actually making it difficult for patients to be successful with their dietary intervention to begin with. And that's crucial what you just said, moving forward after the procedure, you've presumably still got to be cognizant of what you're eating and, and be sensible about it. That's exactly right. And I think that the more that you're sensible, then the more durable and potentially curative this intervention may be in an individual's life. What I mean by this is, it's now clear that our modern diets are causing changes throughout our bodies. I think no one would dispute that. What we are adding is that it causes a specific change to a specific portion of the intestine, and then that specific change is driving the metabolic state. So it occurs over many years. It doesn't occur right away. You know, we may start eating a bad diet when we're five or six years old, come home from school and have a Coca-Cola and cookies, as many children do. And then that persists over a period of time. But it's not until we're many years older that we actually develop diabetes. So if we're able to realize that the sugar and fat in our diet are actually causing a problem in this area, if we can fix the problem and then educate patients on what it is that they're doing in their diet that's caused this problem, then it provides an opportunity to change the trajectory of the disease going forward for that patient in a way that gives a nice quick win at the beginning of that intervention because the procedure itself is enabling a reset that can then become the first day of the rest of that patient's life. Well, exactly. And you just said it a few seconds ago. Uh, the implications for longevity are enormous. They are. Um, this is an area that's becoming really fascinating, but anything that we've shown in animal models that enhances or extends lifespan in animals are things that reduce insulin levels in the body and reduce insulin resistance. We don't think of insulin resistance as a disease because we like we do think of diabetes as a disease, but insulin resistance is this inflammatory and dysmetabolic state that's driving downstream diseases like diabetes. And it's pretty clear now that anything that can reduce insulin resistance is going to enhance longevity. So our intervention appears to be improving insulin resistance in our patients. And we don't have any evidence to this in humans, but 
we are intrigued by the prospect of how improving insulin resistance can touch so many things beyond diabetes, as I've already mentioned. So I'm curious, in your own life, as you address your own longevity and, and think about getting over, older and your own health as it is now and how it might be in 20 or 30 years' time, what have you learned from your work, from your professional work, that you actually apply to yourself? And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Many things, actually. Let's start with what I was taught when I was a cardiology fellow or a medical student, that high-fat diets are bad and um, to be avoided, and that low-fat is sort of the dietary intervention to recommend. In fact, that actually is the mainstay of many nutritional guidelines today. That recommendation and advice no longer makes sense to me. I think it's pretty clear that, uh, that a lot of sugar consumption in our diet is causing very specific changes, and it affects how I think about what I eat tremendously. I used to drink fat-free milk. Now I drink full, whole-fat milk. I used to look for low-fat snacks, and I don't do that anymore. Yogurts, that kind of thing. I used to look for low-fat yogurt, and I don't do that anymore. I think that fat fulfills a very useful purpose. Can you explain the science there? Why is fat okay? Fat's not okay in all circumstances. I think that fat in the presence of sugar is really bad. I think that too much sugar driven by this low-fat craze, I mean, there's only three things, right? You either have protein or you have fat or you have carbohydrates like sugars. So if you try to minimize one, you're almost by definition going to be increasing the other things. And if the thing that you're trying to minimize is fat, then what ends up happening is you end up maximizing the amount of sugar in your diet. Which is, of course, is what the food manufacturers do to maintain the taste of the food, to make it taste good, to make those yogurts still taste good, even if they've eliminated most of the fat. So what do they do? They put the sugar in to make it attractive to us. That's exactly right. And you know, fat also tastes good, but it tastes good in a very different way from sugar. And when there's a lot of sugar in your diet and not a lot of fat, it's harder to feel full. And I found that myself. And so I've now introduced more fat into my diet so I can feel full quicker than if I have a lot of simple sugars in my diet. I also think that you can take this to an extreme. Um, there are many people now who have begun what are called ketogenic diets, such extremely low-carbohydrate diets uh, that there's virtually no carbohydrate in the food that they consume. I've tried to do that too. I've tested it out. It's really hard. It requires an extraordinary diligence and commitment and effort. So the execution of the diet. The execution of the diet's hard. I think about my patients and I think about the, the patients with heart disease and diabetes. And I ask myself, what can I reasonably recommend to them that's going to impact their health? And 
patients lead, like all of us, complicated lives with conflicting burdens and pulls on their time. And the effort involved in extreme dietary intervention, while extremely compelling, is a lot for many people. And so the sort of my driving impetus is how can I help deliver and restore better health, help patients achieve better health for themselves without accentuating the daily cognitive burden of the management or treatment of the disease itself. And so by intervening in the duodenum as we do, by offering sort of a metabolic reset, what's attractive to us is that it reduces the daily cognitive burden on individuals and allows us to focus on some few simple dietary recommendations, which are tractable in otherwise complex and busy lives, which is to identify what are the few things that that person is doing that are most directly impacting the risk of the diabetes coming back, and then just intervening on those things in order to try to blunt the likelihood of the disease reversal. So in my life, I don't avoid sugars with rigor, but I do recognize that candy and cake and the things that go along with it are extremely attractive and yet must be consumed only in moderation. So I work hard at just moderating that. I think that's the key. Have you ever tried, and, and a lot of what you've said resonates with how I lead my life and the, the kind of diets that uh, I've tried, and I think certainly a ketogenic diet would be too far for me, would be t- too much, uh, as you say, in terms of the execution of what it takes. Also, I'm not a particularly big meat eater. I prefer a plant-based diet, so it doesn't necessarily go along well with a ketogenic diet. Have you tried fasting? Well, It's interesting because many religions have fasting as a component of their prescriptions. I remember growing up that my grandmother would eat very limited food on Saturdays and once a month would truly fast. And obviously in the Arabic culture, Ramadan and the month of fasting is... I don't think those things happen by accident. I think the sort of the sociology there is that it's good for you to fast every once in a while. And what I do on most days is a light intermittent fast. So I will have dinner and I will finish my dinner at 8 p.m. And I won't have anything again other than coffee with cream until about 12 or 1 o'clock the next day. And my wife thinks that this doesn't make any sense to her. And my mother-in-law and father-in-law tell me that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. But that's what we were all told. We were all told that. Well, I, I'm not sure I buy that. I think that it makes really good sense to give your body a respite from consumption. I think it's good for pretty much everything in us. When we think about our ancestors who were hunter-gatherers living in the plains, food was not three times a day. It was rarer. It was actually much more um, feasting and then relative famine. And we were designed for those extremes, actually. We thrived in those extremes, and our body is built for those extremes. And one interesting theory there is that when you're in a, a fasting state, you are actually mentally more agile. Your brain, your synapses seem to be snapping a little faster. You are more alert, and certainly the fasting I've done. You get to a point, maybe after a day or two, this is not a complete fast, maybe 700 calories in, in a day for a, a periodic fasting period of five days. You, you, And I've talked about this many, many times, <laughs> to the point that I'm boring people about it, but you get to the point where you are actually thinking 
faster and you feel great. So that going back to the hunter-gatherer days, you're in that hungry state, you're desperate for food, but your brain is actually working really well and you're very alert to find the food. And whether you're hunting a wildebeest in the, the Serengeti or you're finding food in another way, the fact is you are alert to what is necessary to get that food and that, that there is some scientific logic there. It, it makes very good sense to me. And I, used, I, my, I was under the impression that if I did this fasting for you know, 16 hours or 18 hours in a day, that I would feel hungry and cranky. And I've actually never found that to be the case. So I don't have... I'll have to think more about this. If, and maybe if I do a greater fast for a longer period of time, I'll know. It's an interesting area. But I do think, actually, um, one of the things I'd like to return to is that our science suggests that the changes that our diets are causing to our intestine are actually making it harder for patients who are already insulin-resistant or diabetic to actually fast. Take as an extreme example a patient who has diabetes and who's on insulin. The opportunity to or the flexibility to diet is actually severely diminished when you're taking a drug that's a growth hormone in insulin and is making you hungry. That's, there's no surprise to why insulin makes people gain weight. It's a growth hormone. It's built to make you want to consume more. So if we really want to figure out a way to improve people's overall metabolic health, we do have to figure, we have to figure out a way how to change the wiring that makes it so hard for patients who are at risk of expensive, debilitating complications of disease, make it easier for them to do the right things nutritionally. And it's not so simple as just blaming them for their condition and telling them that they need to try harder. Oh, yeah, it's, it's hugely complicated. And there are social factors there as, as well. The world that we live in, the way that food is, is marketed and, and thrown at us at, at every single opportunity, I think that is a huge part of it, is the commercialization, of course, of, of food and uh, a tremendous amount of money to be made by seemingly food manufacturers who don't really ultimately care that much. They wouldn't acknowledge that, but that's how it seems, especially if you're talking about fast food, that the end user isn't really being considered in terms of their long-term health. Well, can I provide a little bit of a contrarian view to that, which is that our ancestors who were hunter-gatherers out in the plains that we talked about were only about 600 or so generations ago. It's not long enough for our genes to evolve 600 generations and so they're living in a world without an agrarian economy, without the availability of, forget fast food or processed food, the fruits that we consume today are so much more dense with calories and sugar than anything that our ancestors were designed for. So it extends from everything that is, you know, farm to table, as well as everything that comes in a bag, okay, and everything in between. And... That's how we're built. And we now live in a world of abundance. And so that mismatch between our genes, which are the genes of a hunter-gatherer, and our environment, which is nutritionally abundant, is how we get into difficulty. But this is where the contrarian piece comes in. It wasn't 100 years ago when a bad winter would mean starvation in Northern Europe. 
you know, it's within the lifetimes of our parents and grandparents that a bad year would mean that some people would die without food. And except in rare examples, usually of political discord, virtually no one on earth is dying today of a lack of available calories. So as problematic as the metabolic diseases that we face are, obesity, diabetes, etc., I think it's a heck of a lot better than what it's replaced, which is famine in our lifetimes. And so the flip side of solving the global famine pandemic, in a sense, is the quick and easy availability of calories, which has had this unintended consequence of leading to metabolic disease. So the pendulum has swung too far. The pendulum has swung too far. We can't just pull everything back to the way that we were 100 years ago, because actually, if you did that in its entirety, you'd still be you then you would go back to people who may not have access to food. So now I think the question is, now that we live in this modern world, I think we can all agree that famine is a bad thing and availability of food is a good thing. And we also are smarter now than we were even five or 10 years ago about what are the things in our food that are actually getting us into problem. I think what we now have to do is figure out how are we going to implement the corrective actions in order to get that pendulum to swing a little bit back so that we can everyone can have access to plentiful food and so we're not worried about hunger but at the same time, we're not putting people at risk of metabolic diseases. Let me ask you this. As you look forward in your own life to, and think about your own longevity, how do you approach the aging process? Do you actively think about it and apply certain principles to your life, whether it's diet or exercise or something else, to try to ensure that you will live a long and, and healthy life? Well... I think about a life well-lived, and then I think about a long and healthy life. And I think about what is the intersection of those two things, and I think about what is non-intersecting between those two things. And so I think that there are children's birthday parties with cake to be enjoyed. And I, I think about how, you know, if I followed the live a long and healthy life to its extreme, you know, would I partake in that rare piece of cake at my son's birthday party. And I would say, I don't want to miss that as part of that life experience. On the other hand, birthday cakes don't need to be consumed every single day. But that's what many of us are doing in one form or another, either in the form of a shake or in the form of a smoothie or in the form of a cake itself, or sometimes all of the above. And of course, there is the argument that birthday cake or the occasional cake whether it's an occasion or it's just a Saturday afternoon or it's just a, a special Sunday, can make you feel good. It can make you and your family feel good. There's a collective sense of, of well-being. And that's from a spiritual aspect. Just feeling good and being happy can give you a longevity boost. Absolutely, right? I totally agree. And I think that that's about the difference, you know, that's about thinking about a life well lived versus thinking about a long and healthy life. But I think in general, where the intersection is, is that those are treats to be enjoyed at times and avoided most of the time. And I also think about um, how intermittent fasting can help me function better and live healthier. I think about how I should generally be trying to avoid too much processed food in my diet, uh, because it sort of fits into the same principle of everything else that I've said. But where I spend most of my time thinking about it is in the 
candidly, in the scientific implications of the work that we're doing. Because what I see is that this dysmetabolic state caused by changes in the intestinal lining, if you follow it to its logical conclusion, it's not just about metabolic diseases like diabetes, it's about other metabolic diseases as well, like non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is going to be a leading cause of liver failure in the developed world in the next few years, or polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a leading cause of infertility. I think about the implications that it has on cardiovascular disease and stroke risk. I think most people underappreciate the fact that insulin resistance alone is a major contributor to cardiovascular and stroke risk, even independent of blood sugar. Then I think about how it's a major drive. High insulin levels and insulin resistance are major drivers of cancers. In fact, I just read some people believe that about 30% of modern cancers, breast, ovarian, liver, pancreatic, are actually driven by or augmented by um, the insulin-resistant, high-insulin-level state. And so when you add all of those things up and other downstream effects of this disease, you realize that what that adds up to is an impact on not just longevity, but the quality of one's health or life over those years. And so where I spend the majority of my time is not thinking about this and how it affects my day-to-day life and how I live, but actually how I can build a business that is going to help as many of the people who are faced with those conditions as we possibly can and do so at a scale that can affect public health around the globe as rapidly as possible. And I think that's important. I think when you're onto something that is clearly positive, being able to make a business out of it and a business that makes money and a, and a business that prospers is hugely important because if it weren't able to sustain that, it probably isn't a good idea. That's absolutely right. And I think another piece of it is if it's not profitable or able to generate money, then I cannot, then you can't build from an initial effort into something that can grow and sustain itself. A great business can take a great idea and then expand it and extend it and apply it to more geographies, to more individuals, to uh, be even more effective. But the only way you can do that is by having the money to be able to continue to reinvest and making yourself better. And we're going off in an entirely different direction now, but it, it, it is a whole different argument about money and science and sponsorship. And it, to me, it shows why it is important to generate money on a large scale to make sure that precisely the kind of science that you're involved with prospers and grows. That's right. And I think that if we can continue to stay focused on developing a therapy that's safe and effective and gives patients something that they want and makes them feel better and can reduce their risk of disease, and then we can use the money that we make over time in order to be able to continue to do a better and better job of that, then that's a good thing for society. I think you're doing some fantastic work. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. That was a great conversation. If you'd like more information about Harith's work or a link to Fractal, his company, you can go to the show notes for this episode. You'll find them at our Live Long and Master Aging website, llamapodcast.com. That's double L-A-M-A podcast.com. You can also get in touch and follow what we do at Llama Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Many thanks for listening. 
FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.